So we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to pick up in in verse 8 through the end of the book. We are finishing up 21 weeks in the book of Hebrews. We did take a break over Advent, but it's been quite a journey. I pray and hope that you have been encouraged and blessed in the book of Hebrews and the deep, rich theology and practical life encouragement. We're finishing up this week. For those of you who are going to be around next week, we're going to begin a four-week series on the power and the impact in our lives of the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll do four weeks on the resurrection leading up to Easter and hope that you will join us for that and celebrate together our Savior who is risen. But if you've been with us for any or all of these 21 weeks in the book of Hebrews, man, God has spoken powerfully to us, I believe. And so much of what was going on in the first century has been relevant to us, right? This letter was written to a group of Hebrew Christians that are at risk. They're struggling. They're facing pressure. They're at risk of falling away. And the call of the book of Hebrews has been to draw near, to draw near because Jesus is better, right? We've seen that Jesus is better than the angels, superior to Moses and Abraham, that Jesus is more excellent than the law and the old covenant, that he's greater than the priests and the sacrifices, more glorious than Jerusalem and the promised land. Jesus is better. He's better than anything else in their world and in our world today that could possibly pull you away from him. And so we've heard again and again this reminder to hold fast, to look to Jesus as the anchor that we might not drift away from God's grace, that nothing outside of him can stabilize you, fulfill you, because he is the founder, he is the perfecter of your faith. And we've heard this call not to waver, to put your trust in Christ, not to shrink back from him, but to draw near to Jesus with a, with a full heart. Why? Because he offers us an eternal redemption in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we've heard again and again this, this theme verse from Hebrews 4.16. The call in this series has been to draw near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This morning, if you're a, a person that needs mercy, if you need grace to help in time of near, in need, then draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. And so in this last closing section, I believe the author of Hebrews is going to answer the question for us, how do we please God? How do we please God? Every child is born with an instinct to please his father and mother, right? That's why, that's why toddlers come up to you and they say, look, look at this picture that they colored. And, and, the, and the picture is, is not really something that you'd want to brag about. But the kid's desire is, is, is that you'd be pleased with them. And you are pleased, right? And when the kid learns how to clean their room and, and it's still a mess, but you know that they, they tried hard and their desire is to, to, to please you. When they run across the yard and they say, look how fast I am, they, they want to know that you're pleased with them. Now they eventually grow out of that desire, but it's there to begin with, right? And in the same way, each of us as sons and daughters of God, we should have a yearning, have a desire to please our Father in heaven. And so that's our theme this morning is that we are, by his grace, pleasing in his sight. That is our desire and that is our reality because of God's grace. Hear the word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Somebody say amen. Amen, amen. Verse 8, as we heard last week, calls us to the reality that Jesus, our foundation, our anchor, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, through all of your personal ups and downs, even when you shake, when you doubt, when your weaknesses seem to be more profound than any strengths you have, Jesus Christ is firm, He's stable, He's steady, He is the same. His immutable nature, His unchanging personality, His finished and done work on the cross and out of the tomb is what grounds our lives. We begin with verse 8 because Jesus is our beginning and our end, our firm foundation for our call in this life. And so verse 9 says, in light of his unchangeable nature and his work, don't be led astray. And the Hebrews were at risk of of that, of being led astray by a, a varied bunch of strange teachings. And so the call throughout this letter is to stay grounded in Christ. And they, in their context, were being enticed by teachings about food and altar sacrifices. And as we've heard, as we know, these were these are Jewish Christians. They've come out of of the Jewish religion, and they are likely being enticed and lured by all of the Jewish dietary laws, this elaborate system, not just the laws of Moses, but at this point in the Jewish tradition, there were all sorts of additional regulations and expectations related to cleanliness and food and and habits. And the strict Jews were probably hounding these Jewish Christians who were no longer keeping all of these regulations and traditions and no longer jumping through all of these hoops. And these food regulations were deeply rooted in their identity as a Jewish person, in their culture, in their religion. But from the standpoint of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the author says these teachings are strange. Why? Because verse 9 says that physical food has no lasting benefit. No matter how you eat or what you eat, it has no lasting benefit to your spiritual well-being. What is the call in verse 9? The call is to be strengthened by grace. It is good for your heart to be strengthened, not by what you eat, not by your religious rituals, but to be strengthened by the grace and the favor of God. 
And we should take care of our bodies. And what you eat is important. We should seek to be healthy. Eat food that is good for you. But, it, but it's the abundant grace of God. It's the abundant grace of God that ultimately is going to strengthen you, is going to secure you. And so whether you eat low-carb or low-fat or seek to eat clean food or whole food or kosher or keto or paleo or the Daniel diet or vegetarian or agrarian or vegan, that's all good and well. But Jesus is the one and only bread of life, amen? The one and only that can truly sustain and nourish your soul. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, amen? That's how we're strengthened by grace. And as we feast on the work of Christ, as we're strengthened by grace, we grow in a life that is pleasing to God. If you want to be pleasing to God, you have to go to the right altar. There was this section that we read that may have been a little bit confusing, but let me unpack for you verses 10 and following. See, the Jews of that day that were following the law and the rituals, they went to an altar in Jerusalem, a physical city with a physical temple with a physical altar. But we've read in the book of Hebrews that that altar was a mere shadow of heavenly things. They were going, hoping to find forgiveness and access to God, but that was, that was a symbol of what was fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And the priests who served at the altar, they would eat the meat of the animals that were sacrificed at the altars. And at times, there were certain sacrifices that if you, as a worshiper, brought your sacrifice to the temple, it would be slain, it would be sacrificed, and then you would join with the priests, and you would eat that meat together as a fellowship meal. And they would go to that altar expecting to eat, expecting to be made clean, and the author of Hebrews says, no, it's the wrong altar. Verse 10 says, we have a true altar. What's our altar? Where is our altar? Our altar is the cross of Christ. An altar that gives us open access to the throne of grace. The true spiritual food that nourishes us. It's at the throne of grace. The altar of the cross where we find nourishment. But the author goes on in verse 10 to say, look, without faith in Jesus... Those who serve at the tabernacle of the Old Covenant, they have no right to eat the body and blood of Christ. They have no right to eat the only food that can truly make them clean. And the table that we ate at this morning that that represents for us, that by the Spirit nourishes our souls, is the work of Christ, is our altar. Not this table, but the work of Jesus, sacrificing Himself for our sins, but without faith you can't eat at that altar, verse 10 says. And so we need faith to go to Christ to receive the food that truly nourishes, that truly strengthens, that truly enables us to live a life pleasing to Him. But being pleasing to the Father not only means going to the right altar, but it means going outside the camp. Again, let me unpack some of this for you in verse 10 and 11. With most of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant... The sacrifices were brought to the altar outside of the tabernacle or the temple to the priests. And the blood of the animal that was sacrificed was pouring down the the side of the altar. And the fat and the organs were burned up on the altar. But with a grain offering, with most animal sacrifices, that meat and the, the hide were used to give to the priests. And the priests would take the meat, feed their family, use the hide to, to clothe for them and their families. But there was one offering in the Old Covenant, one offering in the Law of Moses, where the priests did not eat the food, where the priests did not use the hide of the animal for their families 
And there was a sin offering, but listen to this, a sin offering that was specifically made for the entire nation. So verse 11, if you look at your text, is talking about a particular type of offering. It was the offering that was made on the annual Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. There were other instances throughout the year where this corporate sin offering could be made, not for your personal sin, but for the sin of the nation. The blood of that sacrifice would be sprinkled on the curtain in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. But then the meat, listen to this, the meat from the animal would not be eaten. It would not be burned up on the altar. The meat for this corporate sin offering would be taken outside of the tabernacle, outside of the courtyard, outside of the city of Jerusalem. It would be taken outside of the camp of God's people and burned. Very odd. This one particular sacrifice burned outside of the camp. That's what was done on the Day of Atonement. And so verse 12 says, listen, in the same way, Jesus also suffered outside of the gate. Outside of the camp. That's how he makes you pure. Not inside the system of of sacrifice in Jerusalem, but outside the camp. That's how you are purified by the sacrifice of his own blood. See, listen, Jesus' death on the cross did not take place at the tabernacle. It did not take place at the temple of Jerusalem. It did not take place on the temple mount. Jesus' death on the cross didn't even take place within the city walls of Jerusalem. It took place outside of the city. What in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Latin, Calvary. In English, he was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem, simply called the place of skull. That's where Jesus died, outside the camp. And so verse 13 says, therefore, in light of what Christ has done on your behalf, let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp. Now, I hope you followed at least most of that, because what the author of Hebrews has just done here is brilliant. It's brilliant taking the theology and and, and the system of the Old Testament and applying it to the direct situation and the circumstances of those Christians who were struggling in the first century. Listen to his reasoning. He's writing to people who have come to Christ but are now being pulled back. Right? They're being pulled back inside the city. They're, trying, they're being tempted to, to return to the stability, the history, the ritual, the tradition, the establishment of Judaism. And he takes the example of this corporate sin offering in the Old Testament, which like all aspects of the Old Testament ultimately foreshadowed Christ, and he uses that sacrifice, the very thing that the, that the Jewish legalists were trying to twist and distort to, to draw these Christians away from Christ. He uses that very thing and says, no, no, you have to properly understand it because like the sin offering for the nation, Jesus was crucified outside the camp. That's where we go follow the Messiah of Israel, Jesus left the temple, left Jerusalem. He suffered reproach outside of the Jewish ritual system. He carried the curse for you and I on the cross. And so the call is, now go out to him. And I, I call you and I remind you of that today, just as, just as the call is to feast on the work of Christ, to be nourished with the grace found at the cross. Go to him outside the camp. Go to him on the cross where he died for your sin. Go to him on the cross where he, through his work, reconciles you back to the Father. And through rising out of the tomb, he fills you with the Holy Spirit. He enables you to connect with God, to be a son or daughter who is loved and valued. Go to him outside of the camp, as it says in verse 13. And now, you know what? He says, he says, come outside of the camp with me. Now, here's what that meant to these first century Hebrew tr- Christians. It meant go outside of the camp of Judaism. When you leave Judaism, you find yourself in a place of shame to the other Jews. 
but it's outside of the camp of Judaism that you find life and blessing before God. And he calls them, he says, you need to leave and go outside the establishment of man-centered religion. Go outside of the walls of Jerusalem, outside of the places of power in your culture, outside of the places of comfort in your society. Go outside with Christ, with Christ who went outside the camp, who for the joy set before him despised the shame of the cross. And, and the author says, let's bear the reproach of Christ with him, we're told in verse 13. Friends, here's what that means. That means that if you follow Jesus, from the perspective of the world, you may face disgrace. If you wear the name of Christ as your Savior, you may face disgrace. And verse 13 says, yes, carry that disgrace with honor because you are following Jesus as he went outside of the kingdom. See, Christianity is an upside-down kingdom. Christianity is ultimately a a, a faith, a worldview, a kingdom, a, a life that is outside the power structures of this world. And so to follow Christ outside of the camp means that you may have to let go of things, you may have to give things up. It means you can no longer play the game of success in, the, in, in your career, if that involves dishonesty or compromising your integrity, you go outside of that. It means that you may need to, to walk away from popularity. Because if to be popular, you need to tear others down and push others down, Jesus says you walk away from that, outside of that. It means you need to walk outside of, of the places of power and wealth. Because if wealth means you sacrifice all else, and you give up family and, and the Lord. You, you have to make your career your first priority to make your quarter-end goals, to get your commission. If that's what success is, is compromising who you are in Christ, you have to walk outside of that to a kingdom that is outside of the power structures of this world. Think about a local owner of a restaurant I, I was talking to recently. And he, he told me that they, they are now closing their restaurant Saturdays at 2.30. I said, why would you do that? It wasn't Saturday nights one of your biggest nights of the week? And he said, oh yeah. He said, but staffing and the crowds and the busyness, he said, it was running me ragged. And he, this, this local business owner has now chosen to close his restaurant at 2.30 to give up all of that income. He said, now I get to go home and be with my wife and my daughters. It makes no sense inside the camp of power and wealth and pleasure of this world. But the call of Christ is to die to self, to come into a kingdom that may not make sense from this world. In fact, may bring you shame and reproach from the position of this world. But there and there alone will you find life. Will you find a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And ultimately where you find Jesus because he lives, he died, and he rose again outside of the camp. And so verse 14 says, listen, even if you try to stay in Jerusalem, here we have no lasting city, it says. In other words, nothing in this life, none of the cities or kingdoms of this world are permanent. We are seeking a city that is to come, an eternal city, the city of the living God that cannot be shaken. See, all that is in this world, all that is in empty man-centered religion will one day crumble away. And so will you choose to live inside the camp, inside the establishment, or to go outside where Jesus is and find life and flourishment there to be strengthened by his grace, there to be fed at the altar of the cross, and there to be pleasing to your Father in heaven, pleasing in his sight. 
Look with me at verse 15 because the passage goes on to talk about these sacrifices of praise that are pleasing to God. Verse 15 says, Therefore, through Christ, our one and only mediator, through him, our high priest that connects us to God, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And I love this word continually is in there. So we don't just offer up sacrifices to worship once a week on 90 minutes on Sunday or special times or special days of the week, but our lives continually are to be a sacrifice of praise to God. We heard this in chapter 12, verse 28 where we're called to, to be grateful that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and in light of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, verse chapter 12, 28 says, that offer to God your life as acceptable worship. So again, the sacrifices at the temple were not only a crucial part of, of the Jewish culture, of the, the Jewish religion, but nearly every religion of the day in the first century Animal sacrifices at a temple and priests were essential. And, and can you imagine being a Christian and, and professing faith in a Savior that had died and rose again? And, and people say, oh, oh who, who's your God? Well, he's the creator God. Oh, well, where's your temple? We don't have a temple. Where's your altar? We don't have an altar. Well, what does your God look like? He has no image. Well, who are the priests that you follow? We don't have priests. And so these Christians are struggling Right, We believe in Jesus, but he doesn't fit into any of the religious understanding of what we came out of and what the world around us is telling us we need to do and believe. And so the author says, oh, you want sacrifices? You want sacrifices to your God? I'll give you some sacrifices. We have sacrifices that are pleasing to God, not made at a physical altar, but made in how you live your life. To live your life as a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to God. What does that mean? Verse 15 tells us. Verse 15 says that a sacrifice of praise is, is the fruit of lips that acknowledge the name of Jesus. Now listen, that word not acknowledge could be misleading. It could be like a head nod, right? Like you see a buddy across the room and, and you acknowledge him. You, you know, give him one of those. This is not like a head nod. This is not to sit down, and if you're a member, Father, thank you for this food, in Jesus' name, amen. Right? And you should pray before you eat. You should pray continually. But this is, this is talking about, as some translations translate it, acknowledge here as giving thanks, confessing, or openly professing the name of Jesus, proclaiming allegiance to the name of Jesus. That is a sacrifice of worship. To profess and proclaim the name of Jesus in how you live. And specifically here, it talks about the fruit of your lips, acknowledging, openly professing the name of Jesus in all the places that you go. In your school and in your work and on your teams and in your neighborhoods and in your communities. Acknowledging the name of Christ. And I understand that that's hard. So much of our world is cut off and segmented from the people around you and so many neighbors don't want to talk and don't want to connect. Many of you go to workplaces either in your basement or in offices where you still don't talk to anybody. I talked with a brother recently who has a government job. He, he works in a government office, but he's working remotely. In other words, nobody else in that office is working on his team. He said he goes in, he checks in his cubicle. He could be sitting next to one guy one week and another guy another week working on a completely different pro He's They said they don't even say hello. I, I, I would just suffocate and die probably, but 
How do you go into a situation like that and profess the name of Jesus and openly acknowledge and proclaim the name of Jesus? How do you do that with neighbors who, who are not interested in connecting? How do you do that on teammates, young people, who, who shut you out the first time you mention your faith? Friends, we have, to, we have to pray, we have to collaborate, we have to brainstorm, we have to work together on what does it mean for us to offer the fruit of our lips as a sacrifice of praise, acknowledging the name of Jesus, finding ways not just to talk about church, not to talk about morality, not to talk about faith, but to talk about our Savior Christ. And some of that may just be as simple as, as acknowledging his name in your conversations But secondly, verse 16 says another sacrifice of praise is not to neglect doing good, to share what you have. These two are sacrifices to God. These two, as you do good, as you share what you have, are sacrifices of praise, what? That are pleasing to God. A life lived in service, serving those who are hurting, helping those who are struggling, giving to those in need. These sacrifices of words and deeds are, coming from a heart of faith, are sacrifices pleasing to God. And for those of you that brought meals to the Cliffords, for those of you that brought meals to Mark and, and Lindsay that had, Lindsay had surgery and, and you've served her and you've brought those meals, you've shared with those in need, guess what? That's a pleasing sacrifice to God. And, and Mark, having received those sacrifices, showed up at our uh, uh, church office on Thursday and offered a sacrifice to me and the support staff of Dunkin' Donuts. He said, give me your order. I'm going to bring you guys coffee. And he offered that sacrifice to us of pleasing to God. And then he said, hey, I've got some time. What do you need around the office? And we said, can you hang up those coat hooks? And, and Mark, in a very simple act, giving his time and serving a sacrifice of praise, whether it's a word of encouragement, whether it's a meal, whether it's an act of service, whether it's a prayer for someone struggling, all of that, a life of faith and obedience is a sacrifice to God, not at a physical altar, but no less a sacrifice of worship. And those Sacrifices of our words and our deeds, our time and our energy are pleasing to our God. And what son, what daughter doesn't want to please his heavenly father? God, give us a heart to want to live in a way that pleases you. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 said that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You want to please God, it's impossible without faith. And that means that in faith... We can please God. Even on the days when you struggle, when you're grumpy, when you mess up, when you fail, when you you don't want to walk in obedience through faith. Not through always doing it right, but through faith you can please God. Because Christ has already won us our place at the throne of God. And so the call this morning is to seek Him, to draw near in faith, to offer your life as a living sacrifice. This goes on, I believe, in verse 17 and following. It doesn't specifically list what comes next as as examples of sacrifice of praise, but I believe that any act of obedience, any act of faith, is a sacrifice pleasing to God. And so verse 17, we see that a sacrifice that's pleasing to God is to obey your leaders. We heard earlier in this chapter instructions about church leadership, verse 7 of chapter 13 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now remember, there's struggle going on in the church that this letter is being written to. 
but the author is affirming the work and the influence that the leaders have over the people because apparently these leaders were also reminding these young Christians to stay rooted in Christ. And so the author writes, imitate them, obey them. Now, we don't like that word obey. Can we find a different translation? The, the sense in the Greek of this word is, is to be confident. Be confident in your leaders. Trust your leaders. Follow your leaders. Submit to your leaders. That word submission is, is throughout the New Testament. It's the call of every Christian. Every Christian is called to yield and to give someone the right of way in your life. Whether that's a, a parent, a spouse, an elder, a boss. We are called to submit, and we submit differently in various contexts of life, but here in the church, the call here is to, to yield to the leaders. Why? We're told, because they are keeping watch over your souls. Keeping watch over your souls, verse 11 says. Now, this, this carries double weight for me. I'm a, I'm a pastor of Living Hope. I'm the lead elder on our elder team And yet, even as the lead elder, I submit myself to the elders of Living Hope Church. This call here to obey and submit to the leaders is a call that I receive and I hear to the other elders here at Living Hope. And I submit myself, I entrust myself to them. We were just at a a meeting this very past week and one of our elders in training came to sit in on the meeting and observe. And and there was a point in the meeting where I, I have an opportunity to uh, step into a place of service and ministry with our, our network, Acts 29. And I was asking the elders what they thought about me doing this. And, and this elder in training said to me after the meeting, why were you so tentative during that discussion? Why, why did you take so much time? Why were you looking them each in the eye? Why were you so cautious? I said, because I needed their permission. I, I, I needed I needed them to affirm me to step into this new ministry opportunity with Acts 29 because I can't do that without their blessing. I'm submitted to them. Now listen, don't, don't take my word for that. Find, find one of the elders after church if, if you're curious. Ask them if I yield to their authority over my life just as the call is for each of us to look to those elders. Why? Because they keep watch over their souls. We are charged to keep watch over the, over the people in this flock. And the day will come, and this is a fearful thing for me to say, and I know that, that Chris and George and Craig and Matt are, are all just as terrified of this as well. The day will come when we have to give an account before God for our leadership over this congregation. We are called to give an account before God of the souls that God has entrusted to us. And so, man, I every day have to kneel down at the throne of God's grace for the strength and the wisdom and and the power to lead you humbly as a team. And I believe this only happens as an an elder team, as a plurality of, of elders. And so I call you, and I personally ask you in light of Hebrews 13, 17, that if you are here at Living Hope or any other congregation, that you enable your elders to lead you with joy and not with groaning. This is what the Word of God says. Please, Enable us, facilitate us, allow us to lead you and to serve you and to watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning. You know what causes leaders to groan? It's the same thing that causes moms to groan and dads to groan and bosses to groan. People that don't trust their leaders, who fight against their leaders, who push against every idea, causes groaning. 
People that question every decision, who criticize publicly and privately, behind their back or in front of their face. People who gossip, who spread rumors. People who are checked out and unsupportive. People who are not actively involved in seeking and following the leader. It causes groaning in any leader, any person of, of influence. But you know what causes joy to a leader? To mothers and fathers, to elders here at Living Hope, it's people that, that, that love their leaders. People that pray for their leaders. People who express concerns to their leaders not from a place of arrogance and skepticism, but from a place of humility. People who give their leaders the benefit of the doubt. People who give their leaders another chance when they screw up, as we do. Who forgive their leaders when they stumble into sin. People who are involved in the life of the church, serving and and sharing faith. And again, these principles I believe outlined in this text are true for husbands in their homes, mothers and fathers with their children. There's even application to this principle in spheres of leadership outside the church and family. And praise God, I'm here to tell you that praise God, and the elders would affirm this with me, I have no doubt that we are blessed, we are blessed here at Living Hope to serve a congregation that on a whole allows us, enables us, facilitates us to serve you with joy. Thank you. Thank you, because look, the text says not only are difficult people no fun to lead, but leaders who are constantly struggling and wrestling and groaning to lead their people, what does verse 17 say? It's of no advantage to you. It makes their life a wreck, but it's of no advantage to you either. There's no benefit to anyone for grumpy leaders. And so I plead with you, if you're in this church, if you call Living Hope home, or if you're in any church, where there are men watching over your souls. If you're in that place and you find yourself that you cannot follow them, you cannot submit to them, you cannot facilitate their leadership role with joy in your heart, the way I see it, you have one of three choices. If you cannot follow your leaders with joy, I I believe you have three options. One is to say, God, change my heart. Two is to lovingly and humbly go to those leaders, express your concerns, and say, how can I work with you to be a part of the solution? Or thirdly, Maybe you need to seek the Lord to say, look, God, if I can't submit to these men, if I can't serve them with joy, maybe I, I need to find a new, a new home. Maybe I need to find a new church. Right? So it's a strong word here in Hebrews 13. And thank you. Thank you for, for your heart for us and the other elders. Please pray for us. Verse 18 calls us to pray for others, that, that prayer is a sacrifice pleasing to God. The author says, pray for me, pray for my ministry partners, right? He says, my desire in verse 18 is to act honorably in everything we do. And he says, he says, I'm sure that my conscience is clear in that regard. In other words, I have no hidden sin. And yet, even though he's certain that he's doing things well, he's not too proud, he's not too certain to ask for prayer. See, we need to pray not only for those that are struggling, but we also need to pray for those that are growing and thriving, and those prayers are a sacrifice of worship to God. He urges them in verse 19 to pray, knowing that their prayers are going to make a difference. Our prayers, our sacrifices of praise make an impact. God hears us. And he says in verse 19, as you pray for me, I'll be restored to you even sooner. In other words, the author is saying, I want to come see you, or I want to come back and not just write you letters, but to be with you. He's longing to see these Jewish Christians, to pour into them face to face. We get some details in in verses 22 to 25 about that, what I call the PS of the letter, the postscript. He says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to live out all the words I've written. Talks in verse 23 about Timothy 
Timothy was either held up with some obligation or more likely was imprisoned. He's now been released. And the author says that when Timothy comes, I hope to come with him. Pray for us that we can come back to you. Greet the leaders. Greet the saints. Greet all the, all the Christians in Italy. Greet you. And he finally closes the letter praying that the grace of God would be, would be with them all. You see this community, this collaboration, this, this early Christian struggle as they pray for one another and serve one another and offer their sacrifices of praise together as they walk together in obedience, as they, as they through faith, offer sacrifices of praise, living a life that's pleasing in his sight. And, and the book ends before the, the postscript in verses 20 and 21, with I, which I think is an Oscar-worthy closing blessing. Many of you have heard this proclaimed either in liturgical churches or at weddings or funerals, and we're going to close out our service today with this. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. This beautiful acknowledgement that we are equipped with everything good by the grace of God to live a life pleasing to him. He says in verse 20, In light of all that I have taught you, may the peace of God be with you. May the God who is peace May the God who, who brings peace. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubt, if you are at the th- feeling the threat of falling away, if you are facing persecution or attacks from the enemy, rest in the peace of God. That peace of God is for you and I as well. This God who brought our Lord Jesus to life from the dead, verse 20 says, Listen, Jesus is not a crucified dead Savior. Jesus is a crucified, risen, living Savior. And we're going to spend the next four weeks leading up to Easter studying and celebrating and meditating and and looking at what it means to practically live in light of the resurrection that the God of peace brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, our, our great shepherd who laid down his life for you, who now watches over your life as a shepherd, who now leads you to still waters and green pastures, who leads you in the paths of righteousness. Your Savior Jesus, your great shepherd, listen, he walked into the valley of the shadow of death for you. He took on the weight of your sin. He received the punishment of God on the cross and now... Having come out the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, he now walks with you through whatever shadow of death you're facing. You're facing whatever sin or struggle or addiction or depression or, or marriage strife or physical illness or doubt. Jesus says, I've been through the valley of the shadow of death. I am now the great shepherd who will walk with you with whatever you face. And so you have nothing to fear. Because our great shepherd comforts us with his rod and he leads us with his staff. This great shepherd of the sheep who brought us back into the eternal covenant with God by his shed blood. And so the author says, now may this God of peace and this great shepherd equip you with everything good. Listen. You are and you can be by the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit equipped with everything that you need for the, for the Christian life. But you say, Pastor Tim, I feel so ill-equipped. I feel so inadequate. I feel so unable to live out my faith, to walk in obedience. And, and I feel that too. I, I feel that, that sense of waking up thinking I, I'm just going to have to fake it because I don't know what I'm doing. Right? For me, I often feel that most profoundly in my role as a father. 
It is in many ways for me personally the, the most challenging, most overwhelming, most area of my life where I feel most ill-equipped. And so I read this passage and I remind myself that I have everything good that I need for the Christian life. The Apostle Peter writes it this way in 2 Peter 1.3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have been given the Holy Spirit. That means you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have love and joy and peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Each of us have gifts of the Holy Spirit to empower us, equip us to live for him. Whether that's teaching or serving or faith or giving or prophecy or mercy or, or leading, Christian, you are equipped. The great shepherd of the sheep has equipped you with every good thing so that you may do the will of God. In this book of Hebrews, as we look back over the last 21 weeks, has been dedicated to unpacking who Jesus is and how he is better. Friends, he is better than anyone or anything else that could steal your attention. And the book of Hebrews has drawn our attention to what Jesus has done for us, who we are in light of his work, how we draw near. But listen, the Christian life is not just one of passively receiving, but of actively doing the will of God, living as a sacrifice of worship. Because, as verse 21 says, the God of peace, the great shepherd, are working in us what is pleasing in his sight. Listen to this this morning as we close. We are pleasing to God. You are a son pleasing to his father. You're a daughter pleasing to your father. Why? Because he has equipped you and he is working in you what is pleasing to him. See, all of this happens through Jesus Christ. The book closes and says, to him belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. It's not your attempt to live in such a way that maybe you'll please God, but Christ is in you working all that is pleasing in the sight of God. And so as we wrap up with a couple of worship songs and celebrate these realities together, let me just remind you again of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence. Be confident this morning, not in yourself, but in the work of Christ. Be confident to draw near to this throne of grace where you can receive mercy for all the ways that you need and grace to help in every time of need. So let's stand together and pray and worship and offer songs of praise to God. Lord God, we come as weak people needing to be strengthened by your grace. We come as hungry people needing to feast at the altar of the cross to feast on the work of Christ. Strengthen us this morning by your grace. Empower us to live in faith. Empower us to walk in obedience that our very lives would be sacrifices of praise to you. And we thank you that our great shepherd has equipped us with everything that we need, everything good to live a life that is pleasing to you. So hear our prayers. Hear these songs of worship. Hear the cry of our heart. See the life that we live in the midst of our stumbling and our struggling and receive it as an act of of worship and of praise. Receive it as, as something that's pleasing to you because that's our desire. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Stir faith in us. Stir joy in us. Help us to live a life that is pleasing in your sight through your love, through the sacrifice of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Hear us, Lord.